Inter interrogating integration. This is something I've been busy with for a, for, a, for a while. Interrogating what do we mean by integration, and especially interrogating what the EU, the European Union, has been doing in this uh, domain for the better part of the last uh, 30 uh, years. Indeed, Europeanization, what we call processes of Europeanization, European integration, has played a very important role over the framing of social inclusion processes into migration law, into integration law over the last years. And the European Union has played a role there, has played a role in changing what we usually think of integration into something else, into something getting into the field of law, getting into a normative dimension. And this change that the European Union has played a role with, first of all, can be identified in a general trend, a general trend in EU law and policy. And we can see that also when looking at certain EU member states' legislations and policies, consisting of the treatment of integration as a migration control mechanism, as a selection mechanism, something to do no longer with social processes, but rather in the legislation covering the entry and residence of non-nationals in Europe. Integration is becoming increasingly something, a program, a course, a test, and in some countries even a contract, demanding the individual to adhere to a set of national values, national symbols, cultural identity, lose its own or her own identity in favor to this constructed one in order to be legal, in order to reside, to be allowed to reside regularly in the country of uh, into the receiving country. And this is a very important change. And the European Union, as I will demonstrate in my presentation, has played a very important role here. There is, in this new conception of integration, a civic dimension. A civic dimension, I come back to this idea of values, culture, identity. Yeah? The state demands the individual to share a set of values for you to be legal here. And this is a, a quite interesting, let's say, shift in our understanding of integration. Integration that in political discourses is used from the left to the, to the right, center, but when clearly looking empirically at how it is practiced, certainly this civic cultural dimension comes very strongly as a tool for a restrictive immigration policy. And this, again, I insist, challenges many of our conceptions of integration as something positive, as something which you know, a measure favors integration, or a policy, public policy response favors integration, perhaps the first response is a, a positive uh, vision and connotations about it. But certainly this is muting and into a governance mechanism, I insist in this idea. A governance mechanism by the state for disciplining the non-national, for disciplining what is considered to be abnormal in contrast to the homogeneity of the nation, of the perceived mainstream way of thinking, way of living, way of uh, seeing what values are supposed to be. And I come back to the role of the EU. Yes, there's been a role of the EU in this process, in this transformation that I will present today to you, where you see certain member states, certain European Union member states, playing a key role in the negotiation of EU laws in Brussels. And in transferring their ideas about what integration policy should be into common European Union public responses, and more particularly EU immigration law. But not only that, not only certain powerful, mean member states doing this, but also the European Commission. The European Commission, the DG Home Affairs of the Commission, supporting these new ideas, these new concepts, into its own policy. In my presentation, I will focus on the tensions. What tensions stem from this new 
concept of integration, this new use of integration, focused on knowledge of society, focused on values, focused on identity. In light of the general principles, the general rule of law principles, upon which the European Union is supposed to be based, and the member states, members of that European Union also. I will start by offering quite briefly an, an overview of the origins of this idea, of this transformation, and getting deeper into what have been the driving factors for this shift into the concept of integration in new law and policy. Then I will look more particularly at the dilemmas, yeah, these tensions I was referring to, of the use of integration as civic integration in immigration law, to liberal democratic principles. Especially when looking at the personal scope of these measures, the material scope, the way in which these tests, the contracts, the programs across Europe are being practiced. Yeah? And put that in relation to principles of non-discrimination, proportionality, and legal certainty. Briefly then I will highlight the extent to which the Treaty of Lisbon and the Stockholm Programme, adopted both in December 2009, have changed anything at all. And I will conclude by highlighting some of the impacts that the role that the, that the, the, the kind of role that the European Union has been um, playing until now has over the entire ambition, European Union ambition, of having a common EU immigration policy. So let's start with the origins. I was referring to civic integration. What do I mean by civic integration? Well, civic integration is this idea of, let's organize a course, an orientation program, a test, on our ways of life, on our values, our symbols, our institutional principles, rule of law, standards, for the foreigners to understand, for the foreigners to know, for the foreigners to respect. So it is really cultural. It is really identitarian dimension the one we are moving in. And this dimension presents both, interestingly, an internal and an external approach. An internal approach, for instance, someone newly arriving in the European Union will be asked to pass a test, for example. Not only that, this person, when applying for a permanent residence status, will be yet again asked to show it's his or her adherence to the national values and principles. So this internal dimension of civic, civic integration plays a role at times of granting security of residence to the person. We are talking about the delivery of a residence permit, as simple as that. If you are, are not integrated into our, our civic or our society, you will not be given this residence permit. You will not be renewed, your residence permit will not be renewed. We will not give you a permanent residence in our country. And of course, the consequence of not fulfilling this test, this program, or course, is uh, expulsion, potentially, from the country. That would be the sanction for a person not fulfilling this internal dimension of civic integration. Certain EU member states have developed an external dimension. So this is not enough. We want people to integrate abroad. Even before they enter our territory, they need to show that they understand and know better than us, whoever this us is, our ways of life, our values, and our culture. As a condition for delivering a visa, delivering a visa, yeah? So in addition to all the discretionary requirements that already exist and apply for someone to get a visa, to go to the Netherlands, for example, now there is an integration approach. Test which adds to this criteria. And here the focus is not, as you can imagine, security of residence, it's actual entry, lawful entry into the territory. And the main focus group is family, family groups. Yeah, family reunion. This is where this integration abroad is more especially applied. That's the target of integration abroad, as I will argue later on, clearly when looking at the national level. So really the sanction, if, of course, if you don't show to be integrated abroad, you don't get your visa, you don't enter. Full stop. 
In my own research, uh, in my PhD research, I looked at the ways in which EU uh, discourse, EU policy and EU law framed integration, how they had understood integration, how the different EU actors, institutional actors, the European Commission, the Council, the European Parliament, the Court of Justice in Luxembourg, have developed an understanding, a, a, a certain European understanding of integration. And I looked since the 70s until our days. And I found out a very interesting transformation of what do we mean by integration <coughs> on the European Union level by each of these actors. And this transformation is the one I told you in the beginning of my speech. Integration, if you look at the 70s, especially the 80s and 90s, in European integration process, was something to do with less facilitate security of residence to the foreigner, less facilitate family reunion, less um, tackle discrimination, let's see how can we facilitate socioeconomic inclusion, etc., etc. Of course, this was not a mainstream, far from being a mainstream uh, vision of how uh, integration should be um, understood, but there was, this was a predominant, in my view, approach at EU level, a new law and policy, certainly, and clearly the European Commission was very much in favor of this uh, understanding of integration. But then things changed, especially since 1999, with the entry into force of the Amsterdam Treaty. Why? Well, the Amsterdam Treaty gave the competence to the EU to legislate on migration policy. Things fundamentally changed. And the Commission had to play well its cards with member states in the Council with a unanimity rule, voting unanimity rule inside the Council, not to perhaps go too distant from what they were doing at the national level. And this meant this transformation. Gradually, use, you know, you, I saw at least in my investigation how integration became more of a condition an integration, a measure, an exception. An exception for a migrant, for the foreigner, to have access to EU freedoms, to EU rights envisaged in European law. If you are not integrated, you don't have access to family reunion, basically. And this new conception, which developed, includes very strongly the civic dimension, this cultural dimension about values, fundamental rights and principles, institutions, etc. You can clearly see that if you check, for example, in EU immigration law, the council directive on the long-term resident status, yeah, third country nationals um, having access to a long-term residence in the EU, this is directive 2003-109, you clearly see it, see it there. I mean, this directive is intended to give, the main purpose was intended to give security of residence to people living for five years legally and continuously in the European Union, and to grant them a set of rights as close as, I would quote the Council here, as near as possible to the, the nationals of the receiving state. And this directive has two articles using precisely this, integration as a condition, integration as a measure. As a, as a condition for the, the person who will apply for this common EC status of long-term residence, for having access to the set of uh, rights and freedoms that the, the directive uh, provides. For example, Article 5 of the directive clearly provides this possibility to member states to apply an integration condition. Definition about what this integration condition means is not given by the directive. It's determined in national law. We'll see how, in a minute, how member states have implemented this into their national legislations. Similar, Article 15 of the directive provides the possibility when a, someone acquires this EU status of long-term residence to move to a second member state and to be treated also almost equally to the nationals of the resident state. The second member states will have the possibility to apply integration measures to this person. Again, as a condition before granting the person the long-term resident status and all the rights and freedoms and security against the expulsion that it implies. So clearly this directive has or provides us with a very 
uh, illustrative example of what I'm talking about. Also, the directive on the right to family reunification. Another example of the use of integration as a measure, as a condition. Yeah, you, you can check Article 7 of the directive here. Possibility was given to the member states to transpose the directive in a way which makes conditional family life upon an integration program or an integration measure. And this is provided by the, the possibility by the directive itself. Also, this same Article 7, which is very interesting, I invite you to read it if you can, because it also allows integration abroad. It has provided member states the possibility to apply an integration test <coughs> abroad before the people enter on the basis of family reunion. So clearly, EU immigration law, the two paradigmatic directives, which have been so far adopted at EU level in this field, have given the possibility to national authorities to use civic integration inside and abroad as an exception to EU freedoms and rights by non-EU nationals. Similarly, I think that the European Union is a very interesting subject and actor to look at, particularly in the field of integration. Because in addition to EU immigration law, during the last eight years, the European Union has developed the so-called EU framework on integration. What is that? The EU framework on integration. I'm still questioning myself, and the Commission also, I'm sure, they are still questioning themselves of what is that. It is experimental governance. It is not law. It's being a policy uh, framework which has been developed, basically consisting of uh, representatives from national ministries, most of which of interior of the member states, getting happily together in Brussels and elsewhere in Europe, closed-door meetings, exchanging what they call good practices, exchanging ideas on how on what works for integration. In our country, we have this wonderful integration contract. This is very good. This allows for a platform for exchanging ideas, what the Commission will call EU learning process, which actually has been very dynamic. I mean, there's a whole bunch of Commission documents which have been published in the last eight years, uh, which are not legally binding, but still, they have built something. They have certainly moved Europeanization forward in this area of integration through this exchange of ideas, through the involvement of networks of experts, networks of civil society actors who are playing a role in developing something which escapes our understanding, or at least my understanding as a lawyer, of what is legal within the EU treaties, what is law, and of course all the rule of law and accountability uh, mechanisms which apply to more traditional and classical European integration processes, which escape completely this EU framework on integration. It is a somehow open method of coordination. This something in between. Even if it's not called like that, you know that there are other policy areas at your level where there is an open method of coordination. Well, this is not called like that. It's called EU framework on integration, but it is. There are many, many um, uh, similarities in the way in the way in which. Um, works. It works. And similarly to EU immigration law, you also see this transformation in the EU framework on integration. You know, alluding to civic integration. We need to make sure that third country nationals respect national and European values. This, is, this in the last eight years has become clearly a priority. I mean, you just have to look at the, the so-called common basic principles for migrant integration. Sounds very good. Uh, 11 common basic principles. Intending to provide, this is what they intend, to provide a common European understanding on what integration means. Well, I invite you to read them. They're very interesting. They look very nice. Um, but far from giving, of course, any particular clarity as to any European understanding of integration. They are rather, I would say, a shopping list of uh, principles that could encompass the most restrictive migration policy to the most open and liberal one. But what is interesting for my talk today is that there are two common basic principles 
which refer precisely to this issue of civic integration, which were new. I insist, never before at EU level you had a document adopted by the Council, not by coincidence under the Dutch presidency. At that time, in 2004, Rita Verdonk was uh, uh, the minister. Um, uh, I remind you that she was the one behind integration abroad concept in the Netherlands. So they were adopted uh, in 2004 by the Council. And Common Basic Principle 2 says integration implies, and I quote, respect for the basic values of the EU. This principle involves the obligation by every resident to adapt and adhere closely to the basic values of the Union and the laws of the Member States. The Member States have to ensure that every resident understands, respects the full scope of values and privileges established in the EU and Member States law. It doesn't stop there. Common Basic Principle 4.1 says basic knowledge, because we can discuss what basic knowledge means, of the whole society's language, history and institution institutions is indispensable for integration. I think that both common basic principles clearly justify, to say the least, the introduction of integration tests. They justify the existence of civic integration uh, programs at the national level. And I insist also in this idea that DG Home Affairs of the Commission have promoted and supported this. The common basic principles, there was a commission communication in 2005 on the common European agenda on integration, which was intended to put into practice these common basic principles. Yeah, if you read it, you see how the commission proposes, recommends member states to implement some of these common basic principles. Surprise, surprise, uh, the way in which the commission recommends to put into practice common basic principle two is emphasizing civic integration uh, orientation in introduction programs on common European and national values. How the Commission sees Common Basic Principle 4.2 to be implemented? Pre-departure measures. Pre-departure measures such as civic orientation courses in the country of origin for uh, third country nationals to acquire basic knowledge about language, history, institutions, cultural life, and fundamental values. This was not the only time the Commission said that, or kind of uh, joined certain member states, discourses and narrative and narratives and policies on integration. But also during the French presidency, I remember, uh, you know that the French, there is this typical French, what I would say, obsession on debating what national identity, about issues of national identity, and Sarkozy has been very keen on this. <coughs> during the presidency of, during his presidency, there was the so-called third interministerial conference on integration, and one of the main uh, subjects for debate is what it was. It was, again, values and issues. How can we ensure and strengthen uh, national and European values? And the Commission published, on the occasion of this conference in Vichy, in November 2008, another co uh, staff working document, so Commission staff working document. Yeah? On strengthening actions and tools to meet integration challenges. The Commission supported the French approach, said that this is an issue, that this needs to be uh, debated, and, uh, you know, um, and actually proposed to have so-called common European models for migrants' integration. This is going to happen, common European models for migrants' integration, which the Commission at that time, in 2008, said is going to be the building blocks of EU policy on integration, and they will provide guidance to member states in their own policies. They will support member states on their own policies, whatever these policies are. You can say yes, but all this is policy, it's not legally binding. Yeah, all these common basic principles, you know, all the, um, for, ex for example, the handbook that the Migration Policy Group has been you know, issuing uh, on integration for policymakers and practitioners and the annual reports of the European Commission on Migration and Integration, they are not legally binding, so you know, there is no impact. Well, don't underestimate the, uh, the effects that this kind of Europeanization can have in practice. 
especially when you link it with money. Because there is also the so-called European Integration Fund, which has been running since 2007, and which provides a linkage between these policy ambitions and getting concrete results. The European Integration Fund, in addition to supporting research projects, academic research projects, that's very good, that's all wonderful, uh, it does also support national policies. It does support integration uh, programs and courses and tests. And actually, um, one of the conditions for the European Integration Fund to be adopted inside the Council was the request by certain member states that the regulation established in the European Integration Fund precisely allowed for these integration abroad measures. And it does. The member states have used, actually, this money to support integration tests abroad. Certainly, the case of the Netherlands and Germany have done so. We, have now, we are now involved in a, in a research project looking at how the European Integration Fund has been uh, implemented and used at the national level. And I can tell you the results are very interesting. Uh, precisely in this logic of how member states have used the money, not so much to promote a European understanding of integration, but rather to find legitimacy and support of the, their already existing national policies. Some of which I think are in tension with what the EU is supposed to be doing in this field. The driving factor, <coughs> how do we need to understand this change, this shift that I've seen in EU law, in EU policy, in EU discourse, in the narratives about integration at EU level? Why do we have this? Well, I already hinted at one of the factors. Certain EU member states. You have to take into account that before the entry into force of the Lisbon Treaty in December, in the area of so-called legal migration policy, we had the unanimity rule in the Council. Yeah? And countries like Germany, Austria, and the Netherlands kind of found you know, common strategies in the negotiations of EU law in the council rooms. And these member states played very well their cards in the negotiations of the two directives I mentioned in the beginning of my presentation, the Long-Term Residence Directive and the Family Reunification Directive. Why? The original proposals of these two directives submitted by the Commission didn't include any uh, reference to integration conditions or measures. It was nothing. This was a result of the negotiations inside the council. I checked the minutes of the council negotiations, and you can see it very clearly. It's very interesting how these three countries pushed the idea into the body of the European law. Why? Well, because they were actually having the same thing in their own national legislations and policies. They said, no, but in our national law, for someone to have permanent residence, we have an integration program. Therefore, the directive needs to envisage that and incorporate it. And the commission said, in the, in the debates in the Council, yes, but this will actually go against the very objective of the directive. Yes. Yeah. Or is that what we don't allow? Or we don't say yes, you're an to rule, lost proposal. Yeah? So these member states managed to transfer their own ideas about what integration means and how integration should function and what the EU should be doing about integration into the European Union legal framework. A second factor, this EU framework on integration, the exchange of ideas between national ministries is not naive. Yeah, we have the national, the so-called national contact points on integration. Yeah, these people I was telling you before who meet secretly in, in, in rooms across Europe with the commission coordinating the meetings. And some experts from time to time being invited. I was invited, I had the privilege to, to attend one of those meetings and I'm very happy that I left alive the room. Um, well, they exchange information. They exchange national practices, policies, and best practices, and, and, and so on. Of course, when qualifying a practice as good, independent thinking is not welcomed from particular uh, national governments, representatives. So it creates an EU learning process, which again has favored the policies of certain member states, the more experienced ones, of 
course, we are more experienced with the phenomenon of migration. We know, you know, integration has failed in our country. We have more experience. We can tell you what you can do. Yeah? With countries like, for example, Italy. We can tell you what you can do, or Spain, or Hungary. From countries like, again, the Netherlands, Germany, Austria, Denmark, playing a key role in the discussions and saying, all these tests are a very good idea. They work perfectly, you know, this is really, really good. And then, this has also led to this politics of um, copying. Yeah, if the Dutch have integration tests abroad, we do it as well, and we do it better. And we're going to do this and that, and we're going to require this and that, because if the Dutch do it, it must be very good. So you have clearly, we looked at the debates in Germany, in France, in Denmark, now in Italy. Member, the governments allude to other member states as a result of this exchange of ideas for justifying the introduction of restrictive migration policies using integration as a tool for selecting entry and looking at identity as, as the issue, and developing it saying, yes, but France does it now. Also, they have this contract, and it works very well. So it's the, really this politics of the mistakes. So the new framework of integration has created that, has allowed that, has coping each other. And not only that, it has also created a certain discourse and narrative of what is integration, which is very strong now and very difficult to challenge. Trust me on that one. And uh, for instance, issues of less benchmark integration, indexing integration, using indicators to evaluate integration, etc. Now the issue of the modules. Let's have modules for migrant integration. Why? Why do, we, why do we need all this? What is this? What is the added value of all this? Has there been really a discussion as to what, you know, can we benchmark integration? If somebody can explain me how we can benchmark integration, I'm very interested to know. Very interested. So this has really created this narrative and this course very difficult to challenge. Also, you need to take into account who is coordinating all this in the, inside the European Commission. It's DG Home Affairs. You know that uh, before we had DG Justice, they were called uh, Justice, Freedom, and Security. Yeah? Until Barroso II Commission came, came in and said, no, no, we need a commissioner on justice, fundamental rights, and citizenship. And another commissioner on home affairs. Yeah? Um, in the beginning, they were under the same Directorate General, but because they couldn't stand, well, because you have, uh, we have Commissioner Reading, that is now very famous because of the, uh, became very famous because of the affair, the Roma affair in France, the declaration she made on the 14th of September. But Reading was also very looking forward to have a fundamental rights proof reading of everything that her colleague was going to do something which created internal tensions, and Barroso decided to split the DG into two formally in July this year. But I come back to our issue. Integration remained in the hands of the Commissioner for Home Affairs, which yeah, follows very much the line of the traditional classical Ministry of Interior approach. Yeah, you can call it whatever you like, but we all know what a Ministry of Interior approach means. Yeah, on migration. So clearly the focus is on managing. Is, is migration law? You know, what, what the DJ first does is rights. For who legally reside in third country nationals? So we are talking about conditions of entry and residence. Are, and among these conditions, there might be rights. But there are also conditions. The national level. So I was telling that, this, that some member states have played certainly a very important role in this transformation. I mean, if you look, for instance, integration abroad, at the moment you have the Netherlands. Integration abroad, including the civic dimension. Yeah, and as an obligatory test abroad on values, not only language. There is also this, huh? But I'm especially interested in this value, culture, way of life part. So countries which have this integration abroad test 
having this language and societal knowledge are the Netherlands, France, and Denmark. You have Germany decided, no, actually this values issue, it doesn't sound very good to us. That's the only language. So Germany, you only have an integration test, but it's, only, it's mainly language knowledge, mandatory. So this is for entering the country. Then integration tests inside, so for having access to a residence permit, and potentially to a permanent residence permit, you have a whole bunch of EU member states actually using civic integration tests, such as Austria, you have Austria, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, Latvia, the UK, am I missing anyone? Italy is now thinking. Italy is now thinking in doing precisely the same and following the same logic. Oh, France does it, and the Netherlands does it, so, you know, it's a good idea, let's develop it. And at the moment they are debating how to do it. Actually, it seems that the main problem is that the regions and the city says that there is no sense in this. There's no sense in this kind of debate. How are you going to demand and require migrants to integrate into Italian values? I mean, what does this mean? So the regions, the practitioners clearly see a problem there. And then also apparently there is a financial element that they see, of course, the financial implications that such a testing policy has in practice that the Netherlands knows very well, and Germany also. I mean, take into account that, for example, when you look at countries like France, and you look at the um, debates that took place in the parliament to justify the mandatory nature of the so-called integration and reception contract, France said, oh, we actually put forward this initiative because we have to implement EU law. We have to implement into our national legislation, the long-term residence directive and the family reunion directive. Therefore, we are going to make the contract mandatory. And they also mentioned, by the way, the common basic principles for doing that. So now, yeah, but there's this common basic principle which says that basic knowledge on institution, history, and so on is indispensable. And this is precisely what the contract is. So it's really interesting to see. And we did, I mean, you can do that in, in, the, other, in the other EU member states. Look at the justifications at the political debates which have uh, provided the background for developing these policies. And then you see the origins. You can investigate further the origins and the, 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 the political um, arguments that have been put forward for such a move for such a new policy to take place. Because in France, the contract before was not mandatory. Well, there was a phase, a, a phase where there was no contract at all. But then it was during the implementation of the directive on long-term resident status and family reunion directive where the government decided to make it mandatory, obligatory. What's the problem with all this, you could say? What's the problem with uh, asking people uh, knowledge on society. Well, I think that there are three main issues of concern. The first one is looking at the purpose and the function of civic integration. The second one is how is this practiced? How is this knowledge tested in practice? And then the last is the personal scope. Yeah, and I will briefly deal with each of them. The purpose and the function. What are the official purposes of civic integration inside and abroad? Why? Why is the state increasingly using this as a mechanism for managing migration and for managing identity? Well, if you look at the justifications given by the governments, clearly this function of Migration, integration as migration control mechanism comes very clear. I mean, we've seen integration is a condition controlling movement, control, controlling the movement, the legality of movement of a non-national. Yeah? It actually determines the accessibility to the legality of entry and residence. And for that, the state demands allegiance to the perceived set of values, identities, principles that the canon national is supposed to have or to share, whatever this person is. 
So the, we see an interesting move. Before we saw this functionality of integration as assimilation in citizenship law, in naturalization, as a condition for naturalization. And now we are not talking anymore talking about anymore access to nationality. It's actually access to legality. But the, the, the uh, level of knowledge about life in the Netherlands is precisely the same than the one applied for an applicant uh, to Dutch uh, citizenship. So integration becomes a tool for exceptional politics, exceptional law, obliging the foreigner to disappear. You need to disappear. You know, your difference, your heterogeneity needs to <coughs> hide into the homogeneous national identity of our values. And furthermore, you don't know about fundamental rights. You don't know about what liberal democratic principles are, where we are, are going actually to test you against this. You need to know what a democratic, liberal country is. There is this presumption that certain foreigners do not know about it. Because of your nationality and other factors, you don't share our values. You don't share the knowledge on our institutions. Um, and very interestingly, also the case of France, the discourse is on fundamental rights. You don't respect fundamental rights. You need to be tested against fundamental rights, which is a very interesting use of fundamental rights. <laughs> fundamental rights as an exception for having access to the very fundamental rights of family life. So you don't know them, you're going to be tested. The question, into which national values? Of course, we can debate for hours now. There seems to be a presumption, which for me escapes my imagination at least, by certain state elites that know clearly what national values mean, or what national identity mean. Yeah? And of course, uh, I, I was very interested to find a legal definition on this. How you define national values? Yeah, and then you go to the French Republican understanding of national values, and of course, you know, it becomes so evident: equality between men and women, uh, you know, um, secularism, um, the right for minors to access to, access to education, uh, etc. So clearly, there is huge uncertainty and subjectivity around the concept of values that we all know. But also, on this, they need to know our history. They need to know our history and our institutions, because this is central. And we are going, again, I'm talking about a test, yeah? a mandatory test. You oblige a person to know about this for being legal. Yeah, that's the context. Yeah? So history and institutions. And they, somebody would say, yes, but that's more objective. Yeah, because someone can, you know, you have that educational system, history, we all learn, and so on and so forth. But we all know that you know, certain readings of history and the ways in which questions that are part of these tests are framed are very difficult to take outside the nationalistic vision of the state. You know, we all know the role of education. You know, the role that education has traditionally played in the construction of the nation state. Clearly, I mean, a certain. I mean, the least we can uh, we could think of is that there are clearly certain different or particular readings of history, and certain readings of history tend to forget how diverse and heterogeneous the societies composed in the nation states actually have been. Yeah, and indeed, our memory tends to be rather short-term, and this. I apply it, uh, certainly I see it in my own case, when taking for granted the, the existence of an homogeneous community sharing a common history, which is pure and unique, and against which any foreigner who comes needs to know and test it against. And this also plays a lot in the imaginary of people, of course, because in Spain, if you ask somebody, clearly the more uh, let's say the past 
on um, the historical perspective of Spain as a plural country doesn't come at once when talking about what does it mean to be Spain. Granada seems to be fully matching the conception of some politicians as to what is 100% Spanish. The Alhambra de Granada. Something which, of course, uh, is interesting. So clearly, one of the first tensions is therefore that there is clearly, in my view, an inherently, the concept of civic integration is inherently subjective and indeterminate, which for a lawyer is very difficult to handle because we, we very much like legal certainty. And it's not only that we like it, it's that the individual is in the interest of individual for any rule to comply with this principle of legal certainty, to know what you know, the requirements that you will be asked to fulfill to legally reside in this country and to get your family if you want. By this I mean what are the mechanisms if someone, for example, legal mechanisms, if someone is said, oh, you haven't fulfilled uh, the test, you are not integrated. What are the legal mechanisms for challenging this decision? In accordance to which criteria does the person evaluating you uh, is taking the decision? How can we challenge this? How can we, after all, how can we prevent an illiberal arbitrary interference by the state official at hand or the computer to determine whether you are not part of the national uh, community or that you are not part of the national value, sorry. I was talking about official purpose. We looked at the different member states. France was one of the countries which clearly said family reunion is too high. We need to, to decrease the number of entries in the country on the basis of family reunification. Let's do uh, the contract, let's apply the contract also to uh, family members. And it appears that it has worked, and they have celebrated it. In, if you check the, the official documents, they say there's, there's been a reduction of family reunification entries in France since the entry into force of the contracts. <laughs> Denmark, the same thing. Denmark said, well, we expect actually the number of entries to decrease, and it has substantially decreased. An interesting case was the Netherlands. <laughs> the Netherlands in opinion, or in the opinion of, uh, I guess, the, the officials in charge of this uh, dossier in the Netherlands, the family reunion didn't decrease enough. There were too many people passing the test, and in 2008, they increased the difficulty of the exam. <laughs> um, the difficulty of the questions. I remind you that in the Netherlands, the questions are secret, are not published. You cannot prepare. There is no way, there is a, a training package but this doesn't mean that the questions that the computer is going to ask you correspond with the, the ones that are established in the training uh, materials that are provided and um, can be bought uh, in the internet. So clearly there is, even if some countries say, after, all, after that, no, 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 but actually what we want to do is facilitate integration. We don't want to reduce family reunion. Of course we cannot do this. No, 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 we cannot do this. Uh, the, the effect, the effect, the practical effect of these measures has been clearly a decrease on family reunion entries. That's a fact. And in some of the member states, uh, this has been, as I was mentioned before, celebrated. But the question is, there is something good, I guess, about the fact that there is some European Union intervention in this field. Are member states free to do what they like? when moving to the European Union uh, context. Well, I'm afraid that by, in, by, inserting, by inserting integration conditions and measures in these two directives that I mentioned before, they are no longer free. They thought that by doing so, they were actually, and they do actually have, a lot of discretion at times of granting the rights and freedoms and guarantees provided by these directives to non-nationals. But they are also moving within the scope of EU law and the so-called EU law general principles, subject to the scrutiny of the European Commission and subject to the scrutiny of the Court of Justice in Luxembourg. 
as, as, as unsatisfactory as some of these mechanisms might be, but they are. This has been co uh, confirmed in a um, few judgments by the Court of Justice in Luxembourg. For, for example, like I can mention the landmark judgment, European Parliament versus Council, where the court said to the member states, well, you cannot apply any concept of integration. Careful, you cannot apply any concept of integration. And, and the court reminded the member states, well, actually, the directive on the right to family reunification, the general objective of this directive was to facilitate family life, not to make family life impossible. So careful with the kind of mechanisms you do. This is my reading of the judgment I was thinking about. So careful member states with the kind of things you do in this regard because you are indeed uh, in the scope of uh, EU law. Clearly the judicialization of immigration law provides interesting venues and um, a scope for new interpretations and developments in the field of migration law at the European Union level. And this will only be strengthened has been strengthened after the entry into force of the Lisbon Treaty. The second element, the mandatory, am I right with the time? Well, five minutes maximum. Five minutes maximum, okay. The mandatory nature, I, I remind you, these, these tests are mandatory. The Commission delivered a report on the evaluation of the Directive on the Right to Family Reunification, where the Commission said to the Member States, the admissibility of your integration measures depends on whether they respect the principle of proportionality. What does this mean? Well, they are, they are admissible depending on accessibility of these courses and tests, how they are designed, which are the purposes of these courses and tests. Do they correspond with the directive's purposes? Procedural safeguards of people subject to this. So all this needs to be taken into consideration. Are the tests necessary in a democratic society? is a, a central question that I think should be tackled, especially when we are moving in the field of family life. Are, we ask, are these member states asking an excessive burden to people to enjoy family life? Especially when you look at the sanctions. If the test is not, is not passed, I was telling you before, failure to comply means your residence permit is not going to be renewed. You will not have access to permanent resident status. Eventually, you will be expelled. But not only that, some member states apply fines. France applies fines if the family doesn't pass the contract um, for the family. There is another contract, integration and reception contract for the family. They need to pass a course on the rights and duties of family, the French family. If they don't do that, the state can freeze access to family social benefits and eventual refusal to renew the temporary residence permit. The last element I think is central is the personal scope. Who are we talking about when talking about integration? Who do we have in mind for testing their national values? Who are we saying that their values are not our values and that their values do not comply with fundamental rights? There is a presumption that certain foreigners do not, clearly. I mean, if you look at practice, who is covered by these integration tests? Are EU citizens covered? No, they are not. They cannot, because this will be discriminatory in light of the Citizens' Rights Directive of 2004. Are rich third country nationals from Japan, the US, etc., covered? No, they are not. In certain member states, clearly the Netherlands and Germany, they provide an exception to nationals of US, Canada, Japan, South Korea, New Zealand, Monaco, and Liechtenstein. They seem to be perfectly integrated into the Dutch and German set of values and ways of life. And the justification <coughs> given is that they have a comparable level of economic development and there is no risk of inflow from these countries. Are the so-called highly skilled migrants covered? No, they are not. Countries like Germany and France, they provide exceptions for these people not to be subject to tests. And the Council Directive, the so-called Blue Card Directive, also provides an exception for family reunion not to be subject to integration abroad measures in the scope of the Blue Card Directive. I don't have time to get into specifics. But clearly, who are we talking about? Well, the poor, 
I will say, no? the dependents, the more vulnerable. The more vulnerable. I guess that when I guess that uh, the policymakers who are behind these um, measures have a clear idea of who they have in mind, which certainly do not correspond with themselves. So clearly, issues of non-discrimination are at the heart of the debates, should be at the heart of the debates. This has been something highlighted by Human Rights Watch, not only. Also, the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination has highlighted this issue. There is the Dutch Council of Refugees has just presented a complaint before the European Commission asking the Commission to launch infringement proceedings against the Netherlands. Because of that, this family test abroad. We'll see what the Commission does in this case. On discrimination, who pays for this? It's central. Who pays for these tests? Because this also is an, can be clearly an exclusionary factor. And I can tell you, very briefly, I can tell you that in Denmark, when we check the justification and discourses by the leaders, they anticipated that poorly educated foreigners will think twice before taking the exam, given their low chances of passing, and their inability to cover the financial expenses, which is 400 euros, every time that you fail. No? Similar comment was made also in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, it's 1,400 euros, I think. Yeah, 1,400 euros. So clear represents a barrier. I don't have time to get into the Treaty of Lisbon. I mean, everybody was uh, in Brussels was really excited about, oh, the, the Treaty of Lisbon now provides a legal base, Article 79.4, for the Union to have more of a role in integration policy. But nobody really knows what to do with it, with this article, for very good reasons, I think. But I don't have time to get there. Clearly, what this article is uh, going to allow is that this EU framework on integration is going to become more formalized into a coordination mechanism, more subject to democratic accountability. You will have the European Parliament involved, something which has, until present has not uh, been uh, the case, and more transparency of the entire process. For the future, in terms of uh, policy proposals, the European modules are at the, at the heart of the agenda, the European modules for migrants integration that I mentioned before. Uh, next week, the Belgian presidency uh, is putting together an expert conference on European integration modules, which is a very good example of what I was uh, telling you before. It's a closed-door expert conference. And I've read the concept paper that has been delivered on integration modules, new tools for European cooperation by a civil society actor in Brussels, and it's yet the same story. Not challenging the very idea of why do we need these modules. Are these modules going to continue support critical national policies on integration that, in my opinion, pose real questions in relation to non-discrimination, proportionality, legal certainty. Is this more of the same? Because if it is, I think the Commission should reconsider what they are going to uh, give incentives to member states and support on member state level, in light especially of the increasing relevance of human rights at EU level. So to conclude, Conclude. The civic integration uh, conditions, measures, etc., what it gives is it reinforces nationalism at EU level. And the European Union has provided a venue for that. Yeah, you link the delivery of European freedoms and rights envisaged in European law to a condition which is hugely undetermined, and nobody knows what we are talking about. And you give that possibility to the member state authorities to determine. Subjectivity, incoherencies, and a very difficult relationship with legal certainty, proportionality, and non-discrimination. And I really think that at EU level, the Commission should seriously consider the strategy that has played during the last nine years to support certain member states' policies and approaches on this in this field like the Netherlands, Germany, and France now, for example, and instead provide something else. You know, why do we have Europe in this field? Do we have Europe to develop what I've exposed today, or do we have Europe for something else? To set limits into what is acceptable and what is not acceptable in uh, 
I insist, what, uh, what is supposed to be a club of European liberal uh, democratic uh, states. It will be interesting if the Commission could come back to the traditional approaches of integration and really play its cards well to say, look, what we are talking about here is social inclusion, you know, making people access to socioeconomic rights uh, possible, and uh, you know, equality of treatment and non-discrimination as the guiding principle, and everything else falling outside this, I'm sorry, but we don't support. But it's not crystal clear. And in my personal view, this nexus between integration and law, integration and migration law, is hugely problematic. And I think I've shown that it only increases the vulnerability of the individual against the state and the politics of identity of the state. And it only encourages social exclusion and insecurity by linking it to these national values and identity uh, discourse. I will leave it here. Thank you very much.